We're considering the fourth antiphon. And as we said before, the antiphons were chants or small hymns that the early church wrote. The first assembly of them all together in one place is in the 8th century, and there were seven of them, and we are on the fourth antiphon considering it. It is, O key of David, come. Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 23 reads, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, this designation that's given to Eliakim now is placed upon the Lord Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. From these passages, this stanza or fourth antiphon was written in the Latin. It was sung in the Latin. This is the English translation. O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Our hymn that we sing at Christmas time, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has seven stanzas. It's taken from these antiphones. And we sang today, O come thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Once again, we're before you, Lord, and before the consideration of your word. We want to be taught. We want to be instructed. We want you to peel back from our hearts the layers of resistance and the layers of passivity and inattentiveness and press upon us a pulse beat to awaken a heart that reaches out and searches for you and longs for you and wants to encounter you and your son Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, come now. Exalt the Savior before us. Show us how all through the scriptures you were bringing us to him and making him known, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's said that every road in England leads to London. And we might understand that every verse in the Bible leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we follow it and we understand it and we make the right turns in the passage, we'll see that all of them and all the passages and verses of Scripture are guiding us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke chapter 24, after the Lord Jesus had resurrected from the dead, he gathered before his disciples and he showed him how from Moses and from the prophets and from the Psalms, all these things had to be fulfilled for they write about him. And he said another place that these scriptures testify of me. They bring us to him. They direct us to him. And 750 years before the Lord Jesus came to the earth and was born in that manger, Isaiah spoke of a man named Eliakim. And he referenced a position that was given to Eliakim. 750 years or further after that, the apostle John in a vision 
saw Christ being presented and the message coming to him from angels declaring that Jesus Christ is everything that Eliakim was only in type that he was the complete fulfillment of everything that had been designated to Eliakim that Isaiah had designated to Eliakim was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus we're going to look at that and we want to understand that and so that's where we're going to start this morning and just understanding from Isaiah 22 and you take a moment and turn to 22 because we're going to be here for the most part of our message this morning to understand it. We want to understand the, the background in which Eliakim is introduced to us. Then we'll look at the man Eliakim and the responsibilities that were given to him and what is prophesied about him. And then finally, we'll look to the Lord Jesus as a fulfillment of everything that is anticipated or typified in this man Eliakim. The first thing you need to see in this background is that there's a test that's taking place and a test that's been failed. And as a result, a judgment that's been prophesied. You take tests to reveal to you whether something is good or bad, whether you pass the test or you don't pass the test. I have a very bad toothache this morning. It is affecting the whole right side of my mouth. It's so bad when it really kicks up on me, I can't tell which tooth is bad. It's every tooth is inflamed. On Thursday, I actually went to the dentist to figure out which tooth it was to see if we get it dressed. And you know what they do is they tap on each tooth. So he's going around my mouth, tapping on each tooth, and nothing happened. I said to him, you know, this is like a dog that doesn't do a trick, you know, when you want to show your friend, because nothing was happening. Then he touched it with cold ice, went around each one of them, hit every single one of them. Nothing, nothing happened. Well, he says, I don't really think it's anything serious. It'll calm down. And I left, and I went home, and I had a cup of hot coffee. Heat. <laughs> Heat is what sets it off. And as soon as that hot coffee hit my mouth, it was like my head just was inflamed. And it's only increased every day since then. And fortunately, because I wasn't able to get on Thursday, I I can't get in to get a root canal until tomorrow afternoon. So we want to make sure that they run the right test and they identify the bad tooth. And then that tooth is subject to the proper judgments, right? Right? to resolve the problem. In Isaiah, a test is being made, and the test is revealing a failure. As a result, a judgment is taking place. Actually, in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, there's a pronouncement of judgments on all the nations that are around Judah. And so Babylon is judged, and Assyria is judged, and Egypt is judged. All the nations surrounding are judged. But ultimately, in 22, Judah is judged as well. And the reason Judah is judged is because it's failed this test. It's come to the test of whether she will trust in God in the time of trial, and she doesn't trust in God in the time of trial. Instead, she actually becomes apostate in her covenant with God, and she turns away from him in the very hour in which it would have been most reasonable for her to turn into him. So this is where we're at in chapter 22. Jerusalem is coming under siege from a powerful nation and it is facing potential destruction. Her army leaders are about to be made captive and they're about to be carried away into judgment. Isaiah sees in a vision that they're going to be carried away. Their leaders and their army is going to be carried away and their army is not even going to put up a fight. And Isaiah also sees in a vision that there is going to be dead individuals strewn throughout the city But they don't die as a result of being engaged in a battle. They die as a result of starvation and having succumbed to the vagaries of the siege that's been laid upon them and they have no resources. And in this situation, it's under this vision and under this threat 
that Isaiah hears the response of the people in the midst of this threat. What he hears in the midst of the threat is laughter. He hears the rousing of voices from the rooftops of the city, melding together in a voice or sound of celebration, even as the city is on the brink of devastation and death, even as battle and warfare and their walls are about to be torn down and starvation is about to come upon them. And let's read these first three verses. The burden against the valley of vision. By the way, there's a bit of irony in the statement of the valley of vision. Jerusalem was on a mountaintop. That's where you get your visions. That's where you see things. Valleys are not the places where you see extensive visions. You're hemmed in. You're closed in. But they are in a valley. They're in a spiritual valley and they cannot see what God is going to do. And so there's a bit of irony in using this idea. The burden against the valley of vision. Against the city that is in a valley and can't see what's ahead of them. What ails you now that you've all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. As you read on, you'll see that as a result of this, Isaiah and this vision that he has, he's prompted to weep. He can't be consoled as he weeps over the situation and the circumstances that are coming upon the city. And Isaiah is basically asking a rhetorical question. He's saying, what's wrong with you now? That you've all gone up to the housetops and are filling the city with the noise of celebration when the outcome that is facing you is a humiliating defeat and death. Isaiah will describe what's going to be happening to them. They're going to be facing trouble and perplexity and treading down and the tearing down of their walls. And God is going to be removing his protection from Jerusalem. The people have made some practical steps to somehow endure the siege, but they've not looked to God in all of this. They've not repented. They've not wept for their unfaithfulness to God. They've not searched themselves to make themselves right before God, their protector. Instead, in the face of this inevitable destruction... They've responded by throwing one last self-indulgent party, one last pursuit for their own pleasures. Let's read about that in verses 12 and 13. Here's what Isaiah writes. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating meat, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So in truth, historically, although it's not yet entirely determined in the different commentators, no one seems to be able to agree at what exactly is the moment at which Isaiah is referring to that this took place. We know as the story goes on that this is in a sense a dry run for Jerusalem. This is not the time in which Jerusalem will be vacated. It will happen later on. He's seeing through to a moment later on when this very thing will happen to Jerusalem, but it doesn't happen at this very moment. The final blow of destruction does not come. They will not be completely destroyed in this moment, but it's a test from God. And it's a test that they fail miserably, and as a result, God brings his judgment upon them. A day of complete destruction of her walls and a complete vacating of her armies will take place. And the slowed starvation of those within her will take place, but it's not at this time. But she's failed the test. She's failed. Jerusalem has failed to respond appropriately 
in the moment that this is coming against them. This should be a time in which there's some soul searching and sobriety and setting themselves right and seeking God and turning to him and asking God to deliver them. But instead they consign themselves to what's before them and decide let's just indulge ourselves one last time. Here's God's sentence against them. It's in verse 14. And then it was revealed in my hearing by their Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. I'll just say to you that we probably should note that the final act of apostasy or turning away from God is an unwillingness to render proper fear to him in the presence of judgment. In the presence of judgment, it's still not to turn to him and face him. These people won't face their reality. They are whistling while not just passing through the graveyard, but they're whistling into the way of the graveyard. And they're not responding. And they'll bury themselves in thoughtless amusements before what should provoke careful, circumspect analysis of their life. Here's a quote from John Oswald. He's a commentator, and how he describes it, I think, is quite suitable. To put this experience in modern terms, we may imagine the situation in our own country in the wake of a nuclear attack. Those who remain alive, expecting to die in a further attack or of radiation poisoning, could turn to God in repentance and faith, or they could engage in one last orgy of looting, indulgence, and passion. Which course we would choose would say volumes about the true nature the true nature of their commitments are being revealed. Just the other day, I was speaking to a woman who is having serious surgery. She has cancer throughout her body, and on Tuesday, she's going to be going in for surgery. And so I called her to see how she was doing and pray for her. She lives in another city a long ways away. And as we were speaking together, she started giving me some instructions. She gave instructions on whether, if she doesn't make it, what she wants her funeral to be like, the hymns that she wants sung, the passages she wants read. She talked about, I don't have any fear, I have confidence, I have trust in what God has done for me, I'm resting in his salvation. She did some soul-searching. I do at times wonder if I've really given him what I should have given him, lived as I should, and I've asked him to forgive me, and that's the right response. You know what I told her? I said, you know what, I think you're going to live longer than me. I think you're going to be all right. Let's pray that God takes you through this and you're all right. But she had a dry run here. She's having, hopefully, let's pray, a dry run. Like Jerusalem. But she's giving the right response. Jerusalem doesn't. Does not come up with the right response. And now what we have next is response of the city kind of localized in one individual by the name of Shebna. Shebna is introduced to us as this steward Shebna. Usually when you introduced an individual in the Old Testament, you would not only introduce the individual, but you'd say what family is from. You'd give the name of his father as well. But his father is not mentioned. He's just all by himself. This servant Shebna, it's an introduction of contempt. And he is what we might say the prime minister of Judah. We understand the duties that have been given to him and the responsibilities that have been given to him because they will be shifted from him to Eliakim. And we'll read about those duties that are given to Eliakim. But we have to understand first, they belong to Shebna. And Eliakim will become his successor because Shebna as well is a complete failure in his responsibilities. He's been given power within the royal family. He holds the key of power and administration over the house. And by the way, that describes the house of Israel, the kingdom. 
He has the management of the kingdom. He's been given a key that brings people into the treasury of the kingdom. He's the one who brings people to advance and places them in positions within the kingdom. And he also has a key to deny people that access to those things and those provisions. And he's the one who watches over the kingdom and administers the governance of the kingdom. He's the king's right hand. What does he do with this position that's been given to him? What's his response? Well, his personal response mirrors the same attitude that was in the people as a whole. Under the threat of destruction, he busies himself by building a memorial tomb for himself. He's going about trying to plan what his mausoleum is going to look like. If you read in the passage, you'll see that there were different levels in Jerusalem. And the lower class were born at the lower levels of Jerusalem. And the more wealthy you are, you got tombs further up and the royal family had tombs in the heights above the city and he's trying to build his tomb in the heights above the city and that's what he's busying himself with and that's what he's running about doing while this great threat is coming coming upon the nation of Israel in verse 16 three times the word here is employed it's there to point out the inappropriate activity of the man what's going on here have you ever heard your mother say that when she's walked in you and you're not doing what you're supposed to? what's going on here and you know she's focusing you on some inappropriate behavior that's exactly what's happening here let's read verses 15 and 16 go proceed to this steward to Shebna who is over the house and say what have you here and whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Because of this response of Shebna, not caring for and not watching over his nation and not providing leadership to them and not organizing them against the attack and the threats that are against them, but instead seeking to memorialize himself in death, resigning to these things and just trying to put out some last banners so that he might be known as some great person. God pronounces a judgment on him just like he had pronounced on all of Judah. It's in verses 17 and 18. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and it will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country, and there you shall die. The picture image here is that it's like he's winding up his turban, his royal turban into a ball, and God is just chucking it into a far-off land. The idea here is he's failed the test, Judgment has been pronounced upon him. He's going to be banished from Judah. He's going to die a castaway in a far off place. So we see here then a failed test in a time of trial and a pronounced judgment. No sobriety, no turning to God. Shibna illustrates individually the failure of Judah as a whole, a failure to turn to God and trust in him in the time of testing. Now, in the place of Shibna, God raises up Eliakim. And Eliakim is introduced to us as a righteous administrator who gives governance to people as Shebna didn't. This, by the way, would indicate to us that Israel is not destroyed at this point in time. The judgment doesn't fall completely in Jerusalem at this time. What we understand is Eliakim was the last, you might say, administrator for the king, the good king, Hezekiah. So that's about the time that Eliakim lived. And it was during a time in which Assyria was pressing in upon the people and upon Judah. It's from Eliakim we find out what the duties of Shebna were to be. What Shebna had failed at, Eliakim succeeds at. Let's look at verses 20 through 24. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, that's Shebna's robe. I'll strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. 
He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity from cups and all the pitchers. Let's understand this for a moment. Eliakim is going to take over the roles that had belonged to Shebna that he had totally failed at. The government is going to rest in his hands, but he is going to govern under the power that God gives him. And where Shebna lost sight of the people and fixated on building his own death crypt, Eliakim will care for the people. He'll be to them what a good king is to be to the people. He's to be a father for his nation watching over them. He'll hold the key of power that belongs to the royal family that opens doors into the royal benefits and blessings into the royal benefits. And also at the same time, he'll operate discretion to lock out anyone as discretion might require from those same benefits. And as a result, Eliakim is compared to a secure peg that is an honor to his family in which all the blessings can hang. And for, you know, all these individuals that have rallied around him and he's become the source of great honor and blessing. Just the opposite of Shebna. Shebna was grabbing for fame and for a name for himself and building his family mausoleum and he brought dishonor to the whole family. But Eliakim is faithful. He's responding to the duty that God gives him and he opens up the wealth of the royal household and the royal kingdom to all of his family and to all of his family as a result is, is blessed by him. But here's an interesting thing. You have to read verse 25. It's kind of surprising. Some people think that it doesn't belong to Eliakim, but I think it does. It has to. It follows right after this. Eliakim, whatever he has to offer for his family, doesn't endure. Ultimately, it fails as well. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off. That's all the family and all the people that relied upon him to secure a place for them in the favor of the royal family and the kingdom. For the Lord has spoken. Here we see that Eliakim is but a man himself. He also will at some point fail in maintaining the benefits that he's brought to his family and to his nation. As more and more people hung upon him and dependence upon him, relying upon him as the one to bring an answer for them and to provide for them and watch over them and gather them wisely, he couldn't bear the weight at some point in time. And against all the pressures that are brought against him in this corrupt world, he breaks off and those relying on him fall from their place of honor. And Isaiah is making a prophecy here and we don't know exactly how it was fulfilled, but we can be sure that it was. Eliakim was a good man. He loved his nation. He carried forward his rule and governance faithfully. He opened up these benefits to his family. But ultimately, it didn't last. Nations and peoples throughout the history of the earth have relied upon Eliakim's. Good men that are positioned in places. And because of their circumspect rule and because they are good and wise men, we benefit from that rule. But it's a lot of weight for those men to bear. And they've never borne it perfectly. They've all, at some point in time, failed. And the benefits they have brought dissipate. And then we long for another Eliakim to show up. Somebody else that can be a peg that we can somehow secure our future and our present in. And, but they always fail. At some point in time, they always fail. His influence and his benefit to the people is limited 
by his own weakness. He was but a man. Now, let's go and turn to Christ. Christ appropriates to himself the position and the role that was given to Eliakim. He is the one who holds the key of the royal household. He is the one who holds the key of the kingdom. He's the one who rises up and provides governance over all. He will be a father to those that he rules. He will be glorified and he will glorify all those who come to him within his own throne as he reigns and as he rules. They will hang upon him as a fixed and stable resting point for their lives, but he'll not give way. He'll never fail. There's nothing finite within him. There's no weakness within him that would terminate the blessings and the power and the benefit that accrue to those in his kingdom. They will abide forever. They'll abide forever. He is the true one who holds the key of the kingdom. Isaiah 9, we read it in our scripture reading. Think about it in these terms now. Verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. There's the key. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The idea there is Father forever, Enduring Father, never losing, never leaving that role. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Take your Bibles now. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And let's look at this letter that was written in which the Lord Jesus takes this designation. Revelation 3. And we're going to read verses 7 through 15. The letter that was written to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Just what we've just said about him. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. What can we say about this? Listen, this door that's opened up to us, we don't open it up. These opportunities for victory and triumph and for gain and for blessing don't accrue to us because of anything within us. We're weak. We don't have the power. We don't hold the key and we couldn't turn it. He holds it. He turns it. He opens the way before us. It all comes to us through Him. Now, He goes on to say in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and know that I have loved you. And If you remember, Eliakim was a source of great honor and glory to his own household, and here we see that this triumphant Lord is a source of honor and glory to us. In this position, we are co-heirs with him. We are gathered with him in his own throne where he reigns and rules, and we receive, in a sense, the overflow of the worship that is poured out upon him. And so it pours out upon his people as well. How about that? Such honor given to us who are weak and have nothing in ourselves. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I understand this myself. This is where many individuals will turn and 
they will believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. And just so you know, I, I do. I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. And if you want me to give you my reasons, I'll give you my reasons later on. And it's partly from this verse. Not entirely, but partly from this verse. But the thing that we should take away from this, considering in the context of what we read and the test that came upon Jerusalem, is simply this. That those who were responsive to God and those who yield to God and repent and turn in faith to God, their response as testing comes towards them and comes upon them and impending trials come upon them is that they turn into God and God protects them and God delivers them and God rescues them. But the person who in the midst of the test turns into their own pleasures and their own desires and their own self-fulfillment, God leaves off to judgment. They're not kept from the judgment. That's the primary meaning here. That's the primary takeaway that we should take for ourselves. And if you don't take that, you've missed, in a sense, the implications for your life in this hour, in this moment. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. End of the book of Revelation, we have this wonderful description of the renewed heaven and earth. And out of heaven comes this cube, this new Jerusalem that comes down and rests upon the earth. And there we abide and dwell with God forever and ever and enjoy all the creation that he's brought into complete order and he's redeemed. And I cannot help but have the, the vision of that day when we as his bride are walking up to the door, you might say, of the new heavens, and he pulls the key from his shoulder, and he opens up all the glories of eternal heaven to us, and enter into the joy of the Lord. What he's provided for us, what he's opened for us, what he's promised for us. The crown that he talked about us losing is not the crown of our salvation. It's the sum of all that we've done to glorify Christ, and it's with our crowns that we will worship him as we cast our crowns at his feet one day, and yet we might go into that place suffering loss because we turn away from serving him. We turn back to seeking our own glory and our own honor instead of serving him. And so the lesson there is keep being faithful to the end. Keep serving him to the end. Paul says of himself that he, he beats his body black and blue in order that he might gain the crown. He not lose the crown, that, that opportunity to take what he had done in service to God throughout his life and he might cast at the feet of the Lord Jesus one day. But Christ is the one who opens up this place for us. Christ is the one who brings us into this place. Here's the fourth thing I want us to see here. Christ has the key and is the key that meets all the complex needs that are required for a fallen creation and a fallen world and a fallen humanity. We say that Christ is the key of David. That's how we pronounce it. That's how the antiphon goes. O key of David. We sing O key of David. And yet in our text... The Lord says only that he holds the key of David. He governs the great and final kingdom that will come upon the earth. He holds the key of governance over all of history. And he will bring it all to a purposeful end that will bring glory and honor to God. This is an image of Jesus Christ as the Messiah holding all authority to carry out all that is required for the restoration of paradise over all of his creation. It's the zenith of our salvation, not just my salvation, not that he forgives my sins, but that he restores all things. This is all in his hands. And it's all that we truly and deeply and profoundly need and long for. It is what will bring to us
the final ending point of all meaning and all significance and all that is good and absolutely right and true. It will be the thing that brings salvation to its completion. And when we think of salvation, we think of it in a number of ways. And salvation is actually a rather complex thing. There are things we have to be saved from. There are things we have to be saved for. There are things that we have to be saved unto. I have to be saved from sin's penalty and from sin's power and from sin's presence. And I have to be saved from the estrangement that sin has caused between myself and God and myself and others. And on more than one occasion, and you know, I get together with pastors on a regular basis and we talk about challenges we have. And most of their challenges are dealing with conflicts within their own fellowship. It's dealing with conflicts between a husband and wife or between one individual and another individual. And it's complicated and it's complex. And oftentimes the problems they're going through have a long history and go back a long way. And there are all kinds of issues and, and they can't unravel it. And that's the key. They can't unravel it. They're just to be teaching God's word faithfully and bringing the word before people and trusting the spirit of God to work in a powerful way. The other day I told somebody, I really would like that my primary counseling time took place between 11.30 and 12.15 on Sunday mornings. That truth would just bear in and bear in and bear in and the Spirit of God would work it. But it's complicated and it's complex and oftentimes in our lives there just has to be a pragmatic of, Lord, you know, I'm going to be obedient to you, but you're not going to sort out all the factors that are going to bring my ultimate happiness in this moment. My goal is to bless you and honor you and be obedient to you and leave that to you. It's too complex. It's too difficult. But those are things that we ultimately need to be saved from. But there are also things that we need to be saved for. There are things that God wants to bring us into that we're not ready for. We are being drawn up into his holy presence. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire. We're not all ready to just go into the presence of a consuming fire. And so what God does... He transforms us and he changes us and he pours his life into us and he brings into us his own holiness in order that he might draw us up. He puts his own burning presence within our life and he works it through our life so that he's preparing us for that day when we will shine with him like a star in heaven and burn within the holiness of God's own holy fire. And God has delights, pure endless, wonderful delights that he wants to pour out upon us. But right now, it would destroy us. It would overwhelm us. We couldn't handle it. The good that he wants to give us, we're not ready for. And so God is even now preparing us and readying us and developing within us a taste and a longing and desire. And he's got to do something in us and work in us so that we're in a sense saved unto all that he wants to give us. But the day is coming. What does the Bible say? We'll run and not grow weary and we'll walk and not faint and we'll rise up like an eagle. God is going to do a great work and He is doing a great work in us and He's moving us in that passion and, and that pathway and He's preparing us for that thing. He's saving us unto wonderful things that we can't imagine and it's a complex thing. It's a difficult thing. And then there are things that He has to save us for. Promises that He has to fulfill and keep. God has made these promises and he's carried them and kept them and he's worked to resolve them all throughout a complex history. He said to Adam and Eve after they sinned that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God has been orchestrating the movement of all history to that day and age in which Satan will come into his final defeat completely and totally and 
And he's actually said that he's going to put them under our feet as well and crush them under our feet. So thoroughly will he conquer, so thoroughly that he'll take weak as we are, he'll grant us the power that is within himself that we might crush him as well. And God, you know, made promises to Abraham that out of Abraham he would bless him and he would bless his family and it would become a great family and that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that he would give them a land that they would occupy as a land of promise and that meant God has to preserve that people and keep that people and God has to restore and hold the moment in time in which God will fulfill that promise to that nation and that people and Paul tells us that right now, because of their unfaithfulness, the people of Israel have been pulled out and they've been taken out of this tree of God's saving and redeeming work, but that there's coming a day when they're going to be grafted back into it. And if there's been blessing to us, who are not Jews, because they were pulled out and he put us in and he grafted us in, how much more will be our blessing when one day God fulfills all of those promises? But it's an intricate thing that God is navigating through all of history to bring to a complete fulfillment. God promised David that out of his house would rise up one who would rule in righteousness forever. and He would reign over all the nations and all the nations would come and bring their tribute to him. God's working that out as well. And then for us, God's promised that he would receive us unto himself if we believed in him and he'd forgive us of all of our sins and he'd wash us and he'd cleanse us. He'd never leave us and he'd walk with us through all the challenges in our life and that he would give us his spirit to empower us and work through us and that he would make us a light in this life to others to be ambassadors for him and he's promised us that he's gone to prepare a place for us that where he is there we may be also and all these promises wonderful promises we're saved for those things they have to take place it's a wonderful thing but it's a complex thing there are issues that demand an intricate complete solution the Lord Jesus said a number of really hard things that people couldn't endure all the time. You remember in John chapter 6, he confronts the multitude that's around them that saw him multiply the loaves and the bread and they wanted a little bit more food for their belly and the Lord Jesus said, actually, I'm the food that comes down from heaven. And what you really need is me. And uh, they didn't like that. You know, it was like, don't tell us that. We're not ready to receive that. Instead, the Lord Jesus didn't back away from his head, but he pushed in more and more into those statements. He became a little bit more graphic and more plain that he was one whom they had to be willing to, in a sense, accept the scandal of faith and belief in him entirely in a world that was rejecting him. And they had to entirely give themselves to imbibe him and take his life completely if they wanted the life that he gave. And in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58, it kind of culminates with these words. Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He just built it up a little further. Well, this is too much for us to hear. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. That was too much for a number of these individuals to take. At that point in time, we're told that many of the disciples went back and they walked with them no longer. It was too radical. It was too scandalous. It was too strong a call for complete and utter turning over their lives for all the issues of their life on Jesus Christ and imbibing Him. The Lord Jesus turned to His disciples when they were walking away and said, Do you also want to go away? And Peter gives this answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. It's almost like Peter said, we've checked it out, Lord. We've checked out all the answers that people are giving, and you're the only one who's giving the right answers. You're the only one who has an answer for all the needs of our life. You're the only one who can work and put together all the complexities and odd angles of our life. It's to you that we look to. G.K. Chesterton tells of a moment when he began to see that Christianity was true. And it was when he began to understand how completely Jesus Christ and his work answered all the complexities and the demands that come from a complex life. How the Lord Jesus, in a sense, had an answer for all the odd shapes and angles and wild and drastic demands that sinful men need to have answered to be brought back and restored in God's salvation. That's when he realized that Christ was the key, the key to it all. Here's what he writes. When one once believes in a creed, one is proud of its complexity, as scientists are proud of the complexity of science. It shows how rich it is in discoveries. If it is right at all, it's a compliment to say that it is elaborately right. A stick might fit a hole or a stone a hollow by accident, but a key and a lock are both complex. And if a key fits a lock, you know that it is the right key. Jesus fits the lock of all I need, all you need, all that you need in being humbled desperately for your sin, recognizing that in and of yourself you're a monster of iniquity. Jesus fits that lock by revealing sin to you on the cross. All that you need in knowing that you are made in the glorious image of God and that you have the capacity and the potential to reign as priest with God and to actually bear or receive the worship that overflows from God's throne itself. And Jesus exalts us in that truth as well. All these strange angles, all these needs, and then all the complexities of life that we can't deal with or bring our answers to. Lord, thou knowest. Lord, thou knowest. We trust in you. You have the key to all things. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. I probably should have said, as just a pastoral note, there are a lot of challenges in our life, and I've told people on a number of occasions, everything that I've ever worked really hard at, I failed at. You know, if you work hard to succeed or you work hard at overcoming some conflict with an individual and setting it right, everything I've ever worked hard at, I failed at. I just don't, by the force of my ingenuity and power and efforts, can't make certain things happen. But everything that I've trusted Jesus for and I've rested in him, he's proved himself. He's proved himself able and capable at just the right moment of opening up doors that I could have never opened, right? And that no man can close when he opens them. And so, dear Jesus, we've come to you. We've put our faith in you. We didn't know how to unlock the chains that bound us in our sins. They held us fast, no matter how hard we tried to be good, or how we tried to somehow make it up by better behavior. The chains still rattled behind us, and we were bound, and you had the key to unleash us from those chains and to set us free. 
And oh God, there is an impulse within us for eternity, for heaven itself. But we could not come through that doorway. There was nothing that we could do to gain it. You had the key. You are the key. In Christ, we're told that we are seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. We were dead, locked in the tomb of our own spiritual death. You had the key to open up that door and set us free and bring us into the life that comes from you alone. Breathe it into us again and make us new. We live in a world in which there's no justice and as much as we try, it's a vain attempt. It slips away so often through our fingers, but we will, O oh God, seek to be true to you. But you have the key to render perfect justice one day. We want to be reconciled to others, even as we know our reconciliation with you. But, oh God, we're so complex. We don't even know ourselves. We don't know how to always patch things up. You have the key. Your spirit can work and will work to reconcile all things before your throne and thus before and to all things. We praise you and thank you for that. We trust you for that. We rest in you. We give you glory. There's nowhere else to go. You have the keys of life, eternal life. And so we give you praise, O key of David. In Jesus' name, amen.